back in the fur shed for Trapping Today podcast episode 27. I'm your host Jeremiah Wood and thank you for tuning in. It's a late Sunday night about 9.30 and I've been up working since 5. So if I drop off, if you hear something you don't like, um, that's my excuse. I'm tired, ready to go to bed. <laughs> but anyway... Um, in this podcast, I want to cover a few different things, but first of all, I got to say thank you. I had emails from a couple of you guys, um, just kind of some words of encouragement about the podcast that you're listening in, and you appreciate that I'm doing it. Um, thank you guys for that. Uh, I appreciate that you appreciate it, and I know it's nothing special, nothing earth-shattering or groundbreaking and a lot of the stuff you hear tonight in this episode is going to be the same deal you know just kind of some basic information Um, but a few of you expressed the fact that you know it's it's trapping you know it it may not be specific to the type of trapping that you are into it may be stuff you already know I'm going to talk about um, dying and waxing traps tonight and that's you know, something that um, pe- people who have done a fair amount of trapping, you know, it's just, uh, it, you probably know more about it than I do. But um, I think a lot of people just, you know, want to hear someone talk trapping. It's good. It uh, keeps you entertained. And you never know. You could pick something up from uh, from just about anybody. So uh, a little piece of information here and there. And sometimes it's just fun to get your mind going and, and working and, and thinking about things. So anyway, um, I did want to thank uh, Mike and Wesley for sending me some emails um, about the podcast. Appreciate that. And thank you guys um, for purchasing books. And anybody else who purchased a copy of the book as a result of listening to the podcast, uh, that is just really good. Fur Profit, Trapper's Guide to the Modern Fur Market. I won't get into it much uh, here, but you can always contact me if you like more information or go to trappingtoday.com. So, um, first off, let's talk about a little bit of news. Uh, Ohio, so we talked about Indiana, um, Indiana possibly getting a bobcat trapping season that was voted down. So that is not going to happen, unfortunately. And it looks like Ohio is going to be the same way. Uh, their, their Division of Wildlife uh, proposed a bobcat trapping season, and the Ohio Wildlife Council has decided to indefinitely postpone a proposal that would have created that trapping season. So unfortunate, it's probably another one of those cases where um, they get a lot of pushback, a lot of people, animal rights people, and changing societal views on wildlife. Um, People feel that wildlife is to be protected, not managed. Uh, as frustrating as that it is for many of us, uh, that's just kind of the way the way things work. So the commission uh, probably we're not going to see anything happen here for quite a while, un- unfortunately. Um, hopefully, uh, hopefully things will change, and uh, and we'll see a little bit more w- proactive wildlife management there. But anyway, sorry. Ohio dudes, no bobcat trapping anytime soon. Um, I'm sure there are plenty of them there. Most of these places um, have seen huge increases in bobcat numbers and to the point where where in some places they're becoming a nuisance and, and, and they're trapped. 
uh, for nuisance reasons. So it, it just makes good sense to have have a legal trapping season for them. But that, that may take a little time. And now the second piece of news is the fur harvesters auction results. So in the last podcast episode, uh, North American Fur Auctions had just concluded its May auction. And right after that was done, that w- that finished up on Monday. And on Wednesday, fur harvesters had, had their auction Wednesday and Thursday. And basically looked at the same exact results basically as the NAFA auction. There weren't a lot of differences. There were a few. And we'll, we'll go over them a little bit here. The Eastern Beaver uh, di- actually did better, a little better at Fur Harvesters. They averaged $14.31. I think NAFA was 13 something. Um, but the 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 Western and the Southern Beaver uh, sold for lower prices at FHA. They were eight to nine dollars a piece. Uh, Castorium continues to be really high. That uh, grade. One castorium was $72 a pound. That's the highest I've seen it so far. I think it 70 71 earlier this winter. So that's pretty amazing. Uh, even down to grade three is $50 a pound. So really uh, pretty pretty incredible. There were only 30,000 beaver offered at, at the auction. So uh, beaver numbers are down. The, the supply of caster is down because of the low pelt prices. Nobody's trapping beavers. And as a result, the the demand for caster uh, hasn't gone anywhere. It's just the supply is down. So what happens when you have less supply and the same amount of demand? Prices go up. Um, Mink and otter pretty much did not sell. Very few of them sold. I'm guessing they didn't get the prices they were looking for, so they just hung on to them for the next auction. Only 39% of muskrat sold and uh, averaged $3.16 overall. So that's uh, less than the 350 NAFA got. Um, but I don't know if they may have held back the better muskrats. Uh, Sable or Martin, uh, first section heavy, Martin averaged about $62 compared to close to 100 at NAFA. So this was a big difference. Um, the first section semis were 32 and sometimes uh, the their grading so fur grading is uh, it can be very subjective um, and what I mean by that is uh, a grader at NAFA and a grader at FHA may look at the same pelt and grade them a little bit differently and uh, it seems that the grading change potentially can change depending on the, where the market's at and what the product is and what's being offered. Um, don't quote me on that, and probably maybe I'd get in trouble for even speculating that, but um, it seemed, there sometimes seems to be a little inconsistency in the grades, and it doesn't make a whole lot of sense on the surface, uh, but but there's I think there's something going on there. There's, there's some leeway in how things are graded. Sometimes there'll be a really strict grade, and sometimes they'll be a little looser just depending on what the market is. So uh, th- there could be a little bit of that, maybe some of those, um, s- some of those Martin may have been graded a little bit tougher at NAFA, so the top, uh, the top lots at NAFA got better 
uh, overall better averages. Uh, I don't know that that's the case. Uh, I do know that my Martin at Fur Harvesters the last time around in March, I was expecting a lot and they did really poorly. Um, they only averaged $26 at Fur Harvesters and uh, $45 at NAFA. So, I, you know, it's for the same, essentially the same pelts. The very similar size, similar color, and so on. So, uh, there potentially there's something going on with, with buyers showing up to that NAFA sale and, and not the fur harvester sale, but uh, who knows? Hard hard to tell. Uh, Fisher pretty much didn't sell. I did have, I forgot, I had two Fisher held over at fur harvesters, and uh, I pulled up and, and they they did not sell. Um, so, again, probably hanging on for better prices. They're in the 40s at NAFA, if I remember right, last week. Lynx, $74.27, virtually the same price as, as NAFA. And then the Bobcats, the Western Cats for Harvesters, they only sold half of them, but they got $650 average. Pretty amazing. And then the drop-off, again, is steep, steep. Um, the Canadian Cats... Uh, $88. So, so um, down to Central, $46. Northern, $31. So basically, you go from $650 to less than $100 and even down, down to the $30s. Um, very, very tight grade and very distinguishing buyers that only want the very best cats. And they're willing to pay for them. Uh, but once you get below that top end, high end, uh, luxury market that wants a specific type of pelt. Nobody seems interested, unfortunately. Uh, raccoon, they did not do very well here. Uh, they, the Eastern Coons, two dollars and forty-one cents. Uh, Canadian, four forty-one. The Western Heavy, ten dollars and twenty-five cents. They topped off, so not a very good coon sale. Uh, Red Fox, I don't. I think Red Fox hardly sold at all at NAFA. And these ones, uh, for harvesters, the Northern Red Fox went for $29.55. Eastern, 18 Western, 13 Central, 7 bucks. So, uh, not a whole lot of market for Red Fox right now either. Coyote, to be announced. So they had 15,000 coyotes that sold. And uh, they they did not include that in, in this auction results report. I assume we'll have news of that soon. And I assume 100% of them sold for very good prices because that's kind of where the coyote market's been. It's been a coyote's been a very very good market. Um, good animal be trapping right now. Uh, the la last two years and and probably coming into this next season, we ought to be targeting coyotes. Um, and then you know they had the various uh, various uh, small species with not a lot of demand, low quantities, and uh, you know like skunks. They sold 900 skunks for five dollar average. They only sold a few weasels, three dollars and forty five cents, and then you know a few other miscellaneous species. But basically uh, similar to the NAFA auction results, uh, not. Not a lot of difference, but there are a few items that Fur Harvesters Auction didn't do as well. Don't know what, what the case is with why that 
happened that way. Maybe the NAFA buyers got what they needed and, and uh, they didn't weren't too interested in this sale. Who knows? So anyway, um, that's, that's where the Fur Harvester's auction wound up. I'll try to get those results up on the website before too long. Uh, third item of news is uh, just a, a book review that I did. So uh, this is a Herb Lennon book. I, I know I, last episode I went over the secrets of successful trapping from Herb Lennon. And another book that I had from Lennon was uh, written in 1946, a couple years later. And it was Raccoon, Possum, Skunk, and Weasel Trapping. So that was kind of a, a very short 16-page book, actually, on uh, trapping of those species. And instead of um, sort of re going over this all over again, I'm going to just cheat. I wrote a little review of this for the website, for trappingtoday.com, and I'm just going to read it to you. So, following his highly popular book, Secrets of Successful Trapping, Herb Lennon wrote several other trapping books to cover various details and additional species of interest to trappers. In 1946, he wrote Raccoon, Opossum, Skunk, and Weasel Trapping. As you might expect, there's much less detail to cover on these quote-unquote lesser species, as Lennon termed them. They're much easier to trap, generally have some of the lowest value, and aren't pursued nearly as much as other critters. But in the late 1940s, with high fur prices and lots of inexperienced trappers out there, a demand for information on trapping these species was there. So I'm going to go off uh, reading this for just a second to say um, there were people that that I know of that paid the bills, paid bought groceries from trapping skunks back in in the 40s. So you know it wasn't uh, a huge money maker, but that fur market was good. And you had a critter that someone could trap pretty easily without a lot of experience. They hung out close to houses and dumps. Uh, guys could, could go out. A lot of it was younger people and kids that couldn't go far from home or school. And they trapped skunks on the way to and from school. Uh, you probably heard the occasional story. The guy got sprayed by the skunk on his way to school and wasn't allowed in the classroom. So just a, it was a pretty neat little part of our American culture back when there was a fur market and uh, young most young boys actually trapped and uh, and the prices were such that there there was a pretty good incentive to do it and and a lot of memories were made a lot of a lot of really good memories so the there there was a demand for trapping skunks weasels you know pretty similar there there was some demand there uh, possum coon. You know, there, but coon. There were there were forty dollar coons. Someone actually commented on trapping today, a day or two ago, uh, about about seeing forty five dollar coon in in their day. Can you imagine that? You know, I'm I'm thirty four years old and I've I've never seen. You know, we had one year that high year in twenty. Oh, was it twenty thirteen? Maybe uh, coons were up a little bit and and then they went back down, but. I've never sold a coon for close to $45, and I don't know that I ever will. Um, that, that'd that be pretty sweet. But <laughs> anyway, uh, they, they were selling for, for pretty good money back then. 
it was pretty interesting actually one of the things that I'll read about here in a second coons were open skinned and stretched square in the form of a square can you imagine that uh, that, that was the conventional way of, uh, of dressing that pelt back then so anyway the book is only 16 pages long but Lennon covered enough basic information to get trappers going including the species habits set examples fur handling and lure formulas most of the information in the book is pretty basic but would be, would be quite valuable for someone without much prior experience there are also some interesting details specific to the era including the fact like I said raccoons were open skinned and stretched square I was also interested to learn that Lennon fashioned his own fleshing tool made of wood so we you know everything we talk about with fleshing now is is fleshing knives that that are sharpened steel and he actually made one out of wood so he he liked that because there's no chance of cutting the pelt with wood but he sharpened it and it it uh, it was made out of hardwood and it was pretty effective uh finally at the end of the book Lennon shares the lure recipe for each species and to me that's quite valuable in its own um for a guy wanting to make his own lures just as learning to trap these minor species rounds out a trapper's repertoire this book helped round out Lennon's teaching to fellow trappers so just another one of those books where he you know he covered the fox the coyote trapping he covered the um, muskrat and, and mink trapping and, and so on and there was a demand here and so he just threw out an extra book it's a very short book very basic but it had some good valuable information in it it's it's really was really neat to read so anyway that and that's another one like like Lennon's other books very difficult to find you won't find it for sale anywhere that I know of you might catch a used one uh, somewhere on uh, a trapping website or at a rendezvous or something if you're lucky but uh, raccoon possum skunk and weasel trapping by Herb Lennon now the final topic I want to discuss in tonight's podcast it was going to be uh, treating traps so dyeing or dipping traps um, to prepare because th- this is the time of year that you know in the off season weather's getting warm and it's an opportunity for for trappers to take care of those traps but that is I have a feeling looking at my notes that that's going to get into some pretty good detail and it's going to take a lot of time and I'll probably fall asleep before having the opportunity to discuss it at length and give the topic uh justice. So I thought maybe I would talk uh, first for the rest of this episode on prepping traps, uh, you know, just some basic preparation on foothold traps prior to getting into the dyeing and waxing and and other aspects of that. So let's talk about um, prepping a trap you know you, you don't necessarily want to die and die a trap or dip a trap and then have to make a bunch of changes to it so you pick up a trap now you may be buying your traps uh, brand new out right out of the box from the company uh, and they're shiny fresh new traps right from the factory or you might be at a garage sale or buying from another trapper you're getting them used and, and they're an older style trap. Um, 
basically if if you're talking about a body grip or a counter bear trap you're probably not going to have to do any modifications to that uh, it's a killer type trap it works quick works easy works simply and there's not really a lot you you need to do or can do to make it work better uh, now some people some people will pull the chain off of that trap and put a cable instead and uh, uh, with that cable they'll have a swivel swivel on one end or swivel on both ends uh, the the reason behind that is if you get an animal caught a certain way and it you don't have necessarily have the killing power you want uh, that animal is not able to twist out uh, and twist and twist that trap and in in the chain that that's that that D loop or that whatever that's called that twist loop chain twist link chain uh, that's on most body grip traps and, and if you spin that too many times it will get bunched up and kinked up and uh, it, it'll get to a point where it doesn't give anymore and potentially if an animal's not caught right they, they could get out so that could be a problem um, some people do that I know some of the Canadian guys like to do that on, the, on their traps and uh, I've actually bought traps in the past uh, that have been modified that way. I haven't done felt the need to do that to all mine. Another modification that people do with body grips is they'll put, uh, they'll try to make them like if you just buy a standard body grip. A lot of guys or few guys will try to make those like a blile, where the blile traps are. Uh, I can't remember what they call them. They have basically um, they they come to a complete closure so they're when the springs are fully fully extended and and the traps fired the springs are both fully extended and out uh, on a standard body grip trap you're gonna have a little gap there it might only be a quarter of an inch uh, but it is gonna be a little bit of a gap if you have a real small animal you might not get a complete kill and I don't know on a, on a 330 yeah, it's probably still going to be about a quarter inch. You know, it could be a little bit more than that, but it didn't give me much. But anyway, um, some of the traps, I think, uh, probably uh, magnums, where there's the jaw kind of is bent forward a little bit where it closes so that it gets a complete closure, 100%. And there's guys that will weld these killer bars onto their standard body grip traps in order to... Um, to make that complete closure. So, it, my opinion, the ones that I've seen, uh, pretty much, I th I think they do more harm than good because they they have the tendency to to hit the pelt really hard, especially if the material you're using to weld, um, if it's like flat stock steel, um, that with some edges, even if they're rounded off, they're pretty narrow, and and I think that that could do more pelt damage than it's worth. So some something to consider, but it is a modification. But for the most part, I mean, you could change the trigger uh, into either a, a a better, more functional trigger, a standard trigger, or you could go to a different, totally different trigger configuration. Uh, for all of, I, I've I've done, I did a video on YouTube. If you go to my Trapping Day channel, one of the earlier videos I did on body trigger options for body grip traps and I, I show a few of the different configurations 
So every what you call the standard two wire V tr type trigger is comes with virtually every trap in the market. There are other options. Um, you can actually buy circle triggers, which are basically just those two wires that are formed in the shape of a circle. Uh, the ADC guys sell them. I know um, oh, Wildlife Control Supplies is where I got mine. Uh, they were over at, at a show and last year, and I bought some there to try them out. And uh, the the other, pretty much the, the only other major trigger type is a pan, a Connie pan or pan trigger. Um, and those are Barker's Trapline Tools. Used to make those, and uh, I don't know who the heck's manufacturing now. Maybe Dakota Line. I can't remember. But anyway, the, the, the Connie pans are uh, basically just a flat pan. You st stick clamp onto your triggers, <clears throat> and instead of having a push-through trigger, the animal steps onto the pan. To fire uh, the body grip. Uh, I've gone into detail on those at quite a bit of length in a previous podcast, so I won't talk about that here. Um, <clears throat> but that's that's pretty much the only other modification you're going to need for a body grip. So that's about it. Now, foothold traps. There are potentially a lot of modifications you're going to want to do to footholds, and this is kind of this depends on on what your trap looks like and, and what you're trapping for and then what the trap looks like when you get it. <clears throat> what brand it is and, and how new it is a lot in a lot of cases. So if you're mink trapping or muskrat trapping, you probably don't need a lot of modifications on your footholds. Uh, they're probably going to be drowning set situations. If they're not, you're probably going to be using like a stop loss trap. <clears throat> so there really there isn't a lot that you need to do but when you get into the fox and coyote trapping especially coyotes because pretty much the majority of these foothold traps that were manufactured 20 30 years ago and older were manufactured for fox trappers and the eastern half of the united states really didn't have much for coyotes at all uh they in where I live, coyotes didn't show up until at least the early mid 70s. So it was all fox trapping up here. And you go every trap, every guy that has traps for sale, every old timer, they got number two Victor square jaws, which, in my opinion, are the worst coyote trap y you can use. They work great for mink. They're a real popular mink trap in places, and, and they're a good size. Uh, good pan, easy firing trap, and they will drown a mink pretty easy. They're they're great for that. As far as a, a coyote trap, they're terrible. Fox trap, they're average. Um, for their day, I think they were pretty good. But anyway, a lot of these traps just weren't designed to hold coyotes. Now, if you get a good deal on, on some old traps, you can make some modifications to turn them into to a good working coyote trap and that may be worth your time as opposed to having to buy a pre out of the box ready to go coyote trap so I, I think probably <clears throat> there are few options that you have for newer traps and I'm not I'm not really up to snuff on on all of my newer traps but it's basically because I'm cheap and I don't have a lot of money to spend on them so 
I, I'm on a budget, I use what I can, but f- far as I can tell, the Minnesota brand traps are probably as good as you can get right now for right out of the box uh, for a fox or coyote, and uh, a trap that's basically ready to go with a little to no modification. So the MB550s, uh, or the MB650s, are pretty much uh, you're gonna be if you're gonna buy new traps that's gonna be your go-to now I think they're like 20 25 bucks a trap so that's that's gonna be something to consider in your budget if you're trapping out west for those uh, 80 70 to hundred dollar coyotes um, sure go get some and that's probably worth it and if you're trapping on private land where you don't have to worry about people stealing your gear then then that's probably a good investment to have um, but if you're in my situation, then you're probably not going to use one of those. The other thing you're going to have is certain states have specific restrictions on what you can use for traps. And sadly, our state is one of those. And we are required to have a jaw spread in our trap. An inside jaw spread measured um, parallel across, basically across the pan, parallel to the dog that's that's gotta be if you have a dog in your trap. Uh, that's another uh, consideration, but uh, that's that's gotta be five and three eighths inches or less. So uh, basically, uh, an MB 550 is legal because of those nice thick cast jaws. Uh, the inside uh, the inside jaw spread is less than five and three eighths inches. So you're you're good with that trap. The 650, of course, is not legal. Um, in that case, and then we have requirements for swivels and and uh, where the chain is anchored and so on. So it it's it really makes for a lot of modifications. So you know it, it, some traps you're gonna have Duke traps, you're gonna have Bridgers, um, a whole variety of different uh, manufacturers that are gonna have different things in their traps and. Some of it's going to be based on what you pay, and some of it's just you know when was the thing manufactured? They're getting better and better all the time um, because you know the average trapper is demanding a little more out of out of a trap for for catching coyotes. So, uh, just a I thought about a few considerations that I would look at, and I'm I'm just kind of hear noise in the background, I'm toying around with a few of my foothold traps here. And just a few things that come to mind. There's probably a lot of others uh, that apply here, but um, I'm just going to rattle off a few of these to to get you thinking about different things that you might want to look at, whether you're buying a new trap or whether you're trying to, you know, modify an older trap uh, to to make into make serviceable for coyotes. And pretty much, I mean, you can catch a coyote with a one and a half. Uh, coil spring um, not recommended um, you can catch one with a one and three quarter uh, because of our jaw spread restrictions there's some one and three quarter traps that I actually um, I, I tend to like and there's some one and three quarters that I, I would trap with over a number two uh, on some of these especially like I have some um, Montgomery step in round jaw one and three quarter traps um, and and some number twos uh, of those and and those are a really good really good rugged little trap the only problem with it is that the pan area is very small so 
tough with like a flat set. If you had a dirt hole set, um, and and you can, you know, you can get creative with with guides and so on to uh, to make that animal step in. But you're you're still probably going to get what you would call a pattern miss in in some cases, where the animal goes in and works a set and steps in your trap bed area but doesn't step on the pan just because that area is is relatively quite small um, again you know as trappers we hear this often times but it really is the case you're taking a critter that ranges for miles and miles out in this open country and you're trying to get it to step foot on a, an area that's two to three inches square um, that that's a pretty impressive thing and and when you think about it that way it, it can be quite one heck of a challenge to accomplish so anyway uh, often a tangent there but uh, some of those old traps uh, the number twos number two Bridger number two Northwoods uh, they're essentially the same trap uh, the same with the number three Bridger Northwoods um, those are a pretty good trap pretty rugged um, they don't meet the jaw spread restrictions in my state but you can you can actually um, modify those by laminating the insides of the jaws to to uh, to make those uh, legal the number three the sort of more of a newer model number three dukes and number three victors are essentially the same the the same trap uh, the round jaws. Um, they have there's number three square jaws too, but the number three round jaw Duke and Victor are if you've seen them before, they're they're oblong shaped traps. They're like when they're set, they're shaped kind of like in an oval, and the short uh, the shortest distance there in that oval is measured across the way that our our jaw spread is measured for our uh, restrictions for our state. And the way it measures measures out that number three is actually legal to use here, so I picked up a few of those um, last year to use, and and they're nice because you do have um, it's kind of because of that oval shape you you know you don't have a great distance there, but it's better you have more area on the inside of that spread than than you do uh, with uh, with like a, a number one and three quarter trap. So, so that's something to consider. But anyway, when you're looking at one of these traps, whether it's you know one of those old ones, I would say if if you got a number two Victor square jaw, I would say don't even bother. If you had, that's just my opinion. You know, someone probably probably um, uses those and says they're great, but I've just seen too many of them torn to pieces by by coyotes. And our our coyotes here in, in the Northeast are pretty big. You know, it's not uncommon to catch. Uh, 50 pound coyote um so they they they're they're some wolf genes in our coyotes and they are very large size and they can really raise hell with your traps um you know out west you may be dealing with more of like a 30 35 pound coyote but but here you know a lot a lot over 40 and um uh, some over 50 so the the um how what was i going to say the the number the number 2 square jaw is a no go in my opinion uh actually the victor professional i think is a round jaw the 1 and 3 quarters and, one, and number 2 of those i've caught coyotes in those and 
those are a doable trap with some modification but anyway if if you're going to do some modifications the number one thing first off to look at would be in my opinion the chain and most of these come with uh, these older traps come with like a twist link chain so there's there are those links that are just like uh, twisted up two two to a time and just kind of twisted and tied together all the way down and uh, that that really is conducive to uh, twisting up and getting bound up and um, not not being very flexible so the first thing I would do is get rid of that chain and replace it with a machine chain so the machine chain instead of made being made by just basically heavy duty wire being twisted around it's actually uh, machine welded and the chain links it's just like uh, say a tow chain on the vehicle every link is individually welded what that does is it means uh, that chain is much more flexible and can be twisted more without binding up and uh, is sets lays down flat and lays down a lot easier um, so the first thing I do is, is switch over that machine chain uh, the other thing is uh, where that chain is mounted on the trap so what we've learned in trapping over the years and manufacturers have have modified their designs uh, to to adapt to this is that really for ideal situation when the trap being put under a lot of stress and that animal is caught and it's moving hard you want that uh, especially on a staked trap you want that chain to be mounted at the very center of the base plate on on that trap and the reason is um, if you just picture picture a trap um, picture it being anchored into the ground and the animals caught um, let's pretend the paws right in the center of the trap and it's pulling away from that trap um, once it reaches the end of the chain um, if that chain is mounted to the end of to one side of the base plate is basically where the jaws connect to the base plate that's where most of the old traps are, are configured uh, that's where where the mounting is and it, it holds it's held animals but the problem is when the animal pulls at that it's uh, it's no longer be in direct uh, the pull the pulling force is no longer directly in a straight line between the animal's paw and the chain uh, because that is offset uh, on the base plate what, what's happening is as soon as that animal pulls tight and the chain tightens up the trap wants to move sideways and when it moves sideways um, the way the paw is caught that can can cause some rubbing there that can cause that to move it can it can cause some damage on the animal that humanely we, we really don't want to see uh, as well as it, it could potentially cause that animal to, to pop out of the trap uh, even with some pretty pretty rugged uh, springs and tight clamp down jaws um, that that animal could pop out of that trap so really there the other thing is is uh, swiveling it, it makes for much more effective swiveling as well of the chain so so whenever you can um, even if it's not required uh, try to mount that cent centrally on the base plate. It really makes for a much better performing trap. And then you'll want to add swivels on the chain. Uh, typically you want one right where it mounts to the base plate. One of the things I've done with my 
old traps that I've tried to redo. Um, I don't have access to a good welder, and the really the you know the best thing you can do if you if you got a shop all set up is they make these um, these weld on uh, plates where uh, basically it's just a, a a metal plate that you weld it's the size of the base plate and you weld it on and it's got a slot in the center of it and with a, a d-ring it comes with a d-ring and so you weld that on and you get the d-ring there and you attach to the d-ring with a swivel um, another option you can do that I've done to to save time and money and, and is essentially as effective is you can drill a hole into the base plate and, and as long as you're somewhere in the center third you're gonna achieve the same thing as as you would if you're in the dead center because remember that animal's paw is not going to be in the dead center of the the trap uh, jaws either so you're gonna have some offset either way but as long as it's minimized um, you may have to offset from the center just a little bit to get around where the the two cross pieces on the base plate come together but you drill a hole right through the base plate and then you run a J-hook through there and you attach your, J, your chain to your J-hook. And what that does is that, that J-hook spins freely in that hole. So you've got a swiveling point right there. And then you can add a swiveling point halfway or in the center uh, portion of your chain. Just cut the chain in half and attach a swivel there uh, to each section of chain and then you get a swivel on the end where you stake. So you have three swiveling points, um, makes for much easier swiveling. If one happens to fail, uh, the next one is close enough that, that it's gonna uh, make up for that and, and, uh, and still going to achieve your objective there. Uh, okay, the other thing, the, the, the other thing with that, that plate to add to weld onto the base plate with the D-ring um, that you cannot achieve with with the J hook thing that I just described is that will also beef up your base plate so if you have a trap that's a little bit undersized maybe not built for coyote if you weld an extra piece of steel to that base plate all, all of a sudden that base plate becomes much more rugged and I have actually seen um, a few cases where the base plate has been bent um, bent uh, upwards as the animal is is yanking on that so it's not very common uh, usually you see the jaws pop especially those square jaw victors um, the jaws usually pop right out of the base plate before that happens but I have seen it bent up before so not not good but it can happen uh, but that extra piece does does reinforce that make it more uh, rugged uh, other options, uh, jaw lamination. So even if it's not required by your state, even if it's not used to achieve a, a, a better jaw spread, you could do inside or outside lamination on, on your jaws. And if you don't know what lamination is, basically it's adding uh, another piece of steel right on where the, uh, where the jaw contacts the animal's paw when the animal's caught. So whether that's the inside or the outside, it's going to uh, be at that contact point. The reason for lamination is very simple. It increases the surface area of that flat spot where the jaw is touching the animal's paw. And when you get a catch, 
if you have a really small surface area, it's like it's like being held. If you're being held, someone puts their fingers around your wrist to hold you hostage, right? Um, how does that differ from someone clamping a zip tie down on your wrist? Well, the zip tie is going to hurt a lot more than their fingers, right? And the reason for that is the zip tie has a much smaller surface area, so it's going to cut into your skin. Um, if you had a little piece of tiny gauge wire and you tied that up, that's going to hurt your wrist a lot more than uh, a big steel metal handcuff, right? Because the handcuff has more surface area to contact your wrist. It's, it's essentially the same concept. If you get those little tiny thin jaws, like I'm looking at a, a Duke trap right now, it's it's got your standard jaw, and it, it's a functional trap. It works great, but but that point of contact with the wrist, you, if you're not well swiveled, uh, or if if things just don't work out great, you know that's that's going to put a, put a little bit more pressure on the wrist than than you might want. The MB550, the MB650. They, those have those cast jaws. They cost a lot more money, but those have a much wider surface area, and so it makes for a much uh, more uh, a, a much gentler hold on the foot. I, I would say because that amount of pressure is being distributed over a wider surface area. So that's the reason for lamination. Um, you want to get it done where you can. Uh, in some cases, like if if you have a really really rugged uh, set of springs on the trap and that jaws closed down if that animal really can't move that um, move their paw back and forth on that on along those jaws because it's it's such a strong set of springs um, you may not uh, do anything positive in the way of paw damage uh, in that case because it sometimes just not being able to move is going to minimize that paw damage anyway. But uh, you know, if your jaws are, if your springs are a little bit weaker, they're going to be able to move around a lot there, and uh, then you get you get into other issues with with being able to pull out and and such. But anyway, my my recommendation, I think, uh, a good thing for us to try to achieve as trappers is really strong springs, but also um, wide surface area on those jaws through through lamination or some uh, some heavy duty wide uh, jaws that come stock on the trap. Uh, that usually involves a welding job. Uh, some of them I think you could probably bolt, bolt on um, but it's usually a welding job. Uh, the other thing to consider is offset jaws and some places, I think maybe New Mexico, you're required to have offset jaws, and maybe a few other places. But offset, an offset jaw is essentially uh, the jaws don't close to where they touch each other. Like in a standard trap, the jaws close completely shut. The the offset jaw, there's going to be a gap between the jaws, the two jaws when they're closed, and that gap is, I think it's usually like. Uh, I want to say a quarter of an inch, maybe. No, it's not going to be a quarter of an inch. I don't know exactly. It might be three sixteenths. I think that's about. That sounds sounds a bit more right. But again, it's 
it's a uh, quarter after 10 and I haven't slept in quite a long time so I apologize if if I'm uh, getting a little off but anyway that the 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 offset jaw is it's basically gonna those jaws aren't gonna close as tightly now uh, it seems to be the objective of some of those regulations for offset jaws was was uh, animal humaneness I guess um, it does allow a little more space but really with with a paw the size of a coyote I can't imagine that there would be any any difference as far as uh, um, being a sort of a softer catch because of that uh, that jaw being offset I I don't I don't know um, what in my opinion what the offset actually does for you is it, it as you if you think about the levers raising and to close the jaws the levers are going to raise and the jaws are going to close until they meet resistance and, and in this case it's going to be a paw so when they meet that resistance they're going to stop and the levers are going to stop at a certain spot on the trap and they're going to stay there um, because they can't close the jaws can't close any tighter if you have um, an offset built into that jaw so you have a, a space there between the two jaws what that allows uh, the trap to do is those levers can actually go higher because there is more space um, in between the two jaws um, through that slot from, from being, them being offset because the levers are able to get higher they, that creates more leverage and it makes it much more difficult for the jaws to be opened back up so and really if you're dealing with uh, a large animal like a coyote with a big paw the offset is actually going to allow those levers to get up higher and hold the, the animal uh, even more securely in that trap. So I'd say as much or more so than than the uh, um, humane argument for that, I, I'd say the offset is really, um, it's a good way, I think, to, uh, to make the trap a little more effective. If you disagree with that, just email me and let me know why I'm wrong and I'm, I'll be glad to point that out on, on the podcast. That's no problem. Um, so anyway, that's that's the offset. Another thing to look at is uh, actually you may want to four coil. So you may want to add uh, two more coil springs if, if you got a trap that's two coiled. Um, there are beefer kits um, to add two more springs uh, on the opposite side of your coil springs. And those are typically going to be uh, some smaller springs. They're going to be about half the size of, of the standard springs, maybe a little less than half the size. Uh, and you're usually going to need um, a new set of pins or a new pin there uh, to go through to extend to the opposite side of the base plate for those springs to attach. And uh, that is going to increase the holding power of that trap substantially. So that's another consideration. And finally, um, the last thing I would look into before getting ready to, to prep your traps for uh, treatment is your pan tension. And you may want to readjust the pan tension uh, periodically as well, even after they're, they're treated. But uh, if you want to trap depending on the species that you want to trap you're going to want to have a certain amount of pan tension 
in general, as trappers, we probably you're probably going to find if you actually measure the pin tension, uh, we pretty much all of us run probably a lighter pin tension than we say or we think we run. So we all talk about two three pounds of pin tension, and uh, if you actually put a put a, a gauge on that, which there are tools uh, testers to measure that. Hal Sullivan makes one, uh, invented one, and if you actually test those, most of them, you're not running that much pan tension. When I was learning to trap, I was running almost no pan tension, and uh, that probably is not not the ideal. Um, it's just what I knew. And uh, on the other end of the spectrum, if you run, you know, three, four pounds of pan tension, then you may miss some lighter smaller animals that that you might want to catch uh if we're trapping in the woods area in november i i don't want to miss a martin that steps over my set so i'll be running a little lighter pan tension um, in that case <clears throat> so so uh, tension is usually adjustable if you got like if you're talking like some old double long springs you may not be able to adjust it at all most of your coil springs you're going to have a nut uh, a screw and a nut to adjust that tension of that pan and there are some the newer traps uh, the MBs actually do not allow you to adjust the pan tension with a screw and a nut uh, they're just not not designed that way however you can you can change the pan tension you just have to be a little more creative and that uh, requires some filing down of of both the the notch on the pan and filing down on the dog to get a, a specific angle that provides a certain amount of pan tension. Um, it's it's a really talk about an art, not a not a science. This is an, an absolute art of getting it right. Some people also like to do what they call night latching on their pans, and the easiest way to think about that is night latch is like if if you're setting this trap in the dark and you don't know where your pan needs to be um, to the point you want your pan to where it's pretty close there's almost no travel when that's depressed the trap is going to fire and you may not know exactly where that is you you should have it adjusted properly but uh, a lot of people like to or lot, some old timers like to do this and, and some people still do uh, night latching is where you you file out a depression uh, and it's like a little stair step on that dog or on that on that notch on the pan to where as you you set the trap and you bring the pan down all of a sudden you hear a click and you actually feel that click and that's where it sets right into that notch and when you hit that click you know that as soon as that pan moves any further the trap's going to fire um, pretty nifty pretty slick way to do it I actually have some bridger traps that have uh, this kind of automatically manufactured into them. There's a little bump that's uh, that's kind of f was for is formed in the manufacturing process on the dog, and as soon as the pin goes down below that bump, it's you'll feel that click, and you'll know that's where you need to be. So uh, that's a whole art. That's uh, something beyond my skill level. I I toy with it just enough to get the traps to where I can. Uh, operate them properly but uh, you could go into probably a whole season of podcasts on how to adjust those and there's guys that are really good at it 
that's uh, a case where Google's your best friend and uh, do some Google searches, get on Trapperman, and, and you'll find some really good stuff. So anyway, wow, 30-minute uh, podcast. Looks like we're close to an hour now. Um, I appreciate you tuning in and hearing me rattle on about that. Hope it made sense. Uh, if not, let me know, and I'll I'll try to uh, to elaborate or correct myself where I was wrong. Um, but anyway, uh, hoping that next episode we can talk about treatment of traps, dyeing, waxing, dipping, and uh, get into some discussions on that. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll catch you in the next episode.